Hey, thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard podcast. Here at Reveal, our mission is simple. Find God, find others, and find yourself. For more information, visit us online at revealvineyard.com. Well, listen, we got a lot to cover today. So, um, you know, just uh, be preparing yourself. We're going to go through a lot of material. We've been studying the life and teachings of Jesus based on John's gospel. Uh, John was a firsthand observer of uh, Jesus, and he writes out of his firsthand experience, and he shows us the real, authentic Jesus, not the 21st century hijacked version of Jesus, not the retouched photo of Jesus that we try to remake into somebody who looks like us or maybe a slightly better version of us. John gives us authentic Jesus. He was with Jesus during the teachings and the miracles, participated in some of the miracles. He was corrected when his faith went astray. And out of all of that, he writes and he tells us why he writes. And this verse has pushed us in our series. Uh, John 20, 31, he says, but these things I've written are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's like, look, he writes this when he's older. And he's like, before this escapes my mind, before oral tradition gets all convoluted and messed up. I need to put these things on paper so those who read it after me may come to believe what I believe, that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Redeemer, the Messiah, and that in him he brings life. So last week we were on John chapter 18. It was the betrayal of Jesus, and Jesus is betrayed by one of his own. And if you have ever been betrayed, you know that the knife cuts a little deeper when it's someone who you've invited into your inner circle. That the pain is that much more intense when it's someone that you love, you trusted, and you were vulnerable with. And this is Jesus. That one of his own betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. So Jesus is now with 11 of his disciples because Judas left, right? He was the 12th. He left, and Jesus is praying with the disciples uh, in the garden, and Judas goes and reports where Jesus will be to get the guard and to get the uh, religious leaders to come and to arrest him to spring his trap. And so we pick up the story where Jesus is being arrested and quickly sent to trial. So let's pray. Lord, so much to cover today, so much uh, scripture to read, and I pray that you would enlighten it uh, to us. I pray that it would be powerful, powerful. I pray whatever mood we came in today that you would overwhelm us with your spirit. I pray that you would convince us of who you are, that you are the author of life, the giver of life. I pray that for us. I pray that we would come to know you more. I pray that we would have questions answered. I pray that you would shorten the gap of anyone who feels like they are far from you. I pray that you would convince those who feel like you do not love them or you're angry with them, convince them of your love and your grace and your mercy and your heart to be near to them. We invite you, Spirit of God, in Jesus' name, amen. Start in verse 12, chapter 18. So the band of soldiers and their uh, captain... And the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now, that little phrase there, band of soldiers, all of the gospel writers um, speak of the numbers that were contained in that band of soldiers. They use things like a great multitude or a great crowd. Luke gives the idea that the number of people who came uh, to arrest him was enormous. Some scholars say it could be 300 plus soldiers 
plus the Pharisees and, and Judas who came to arrest Jesus. Now I got to wonder what Judas told the chief priests and the captain of the guard, uh, what, what did he tell them that made them think that they would need a small army in order to arrest Jesus? Because I don't think that they were concerned about the 11 other disciples left. You know, crazy Peter was walking around with that sword for three years, but he was untrained. And Judas would be like, he pulls the sword out, just cut his head off, right? It'd be easy, easy out. I think what Judas told them was that, look, just so you're aware, if he does not want to go willingly, you won't take him, no matter how many men you bring to the fight. I wonder if Judas said, just so we're clear, if he does not choose to go with you, we're all going out in a body bag. And so they show up with 300 people, 300 soldiers, to arrest Jesus. You remember last week, as Judas and the soldiers approached, Jesus went out to meet them, and he asked the question, who do you come for? And they said, we're coming for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. And at that moment, it said that all of them, 300 plus, however many they were, all of them, soldiers, captain of the guard, Judas, uh, the, the high priest, all of them, hit the ground, bam, could not even stand in the presence of Jesus. Now, the idea of people falling down in the presence of God is not new. We read that throughout Scripture. But here, it is not the worshipers of God who are bowing, but it's actually the enemies of God who are bowing. And it kind of gives a nod to what Paul says when he's speaking to the church of Philippi, where he says, look, one day, a day in the future, there will be a time when every knee will bow and acknowledge Jesus as Christ. That you can do it now willingly, but one day everyone, everyone's knee will hit the ground. And so Jesus speaks these words, bam, everyone goes down. Verse 13, first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus, so this is Annas who's questioning Jesus, about his disciples and his teachings. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temples where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Hey, you realize that in the next several hours, these shots and the abuse and the punching and, 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 and the mocking, all, all of that takes place. That is a one-time only event and will never happen again. You realize that, that the only reason they got in the shot was because Jesus allowed it. He wasn't punched, he wasn't abused, his hair wasn't ripped out. He, it, all of this didn't happen because he was outnumbered or overpowered. He simply allowed it to happen. And here, this was the one and only time that you see in the next several hours that Jesus is abused. Because John later writes the book of Revelations and says, hey, the next time that Jesus comes back, he's not going to have anybody slapping him around. Matter of fact, he says, this is what it will look like the next time he comes back. He said, then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on the horse, on it, is called Faithful and True. He's speaking of Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. I love the imagery. He has a, nobody knows 
except himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. Listen, if you ever show up to a fight, and the opponents are dressed in white, and their leader is in white, dripped in, dipped in blood, time to find another fight, right? Time to head out and go the other direction. He says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, sharp sword which to strike down the nations. John says, look, the next time he comes back, ain't nobody laying his hand on him. And then he goes on to say, verse 23, back in John. Jesus answered him. He said, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about what was wrong. He's like, look, if I was wrong, then prove it. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. It's like Anna was like, I don't even know what to say to you. So he sends him out. Now, I want us to understand the whole story of what's taking place, Jesus, before the high priest and uh, before the Sanhedrin. And so we're going to kind of detour out of John. We're going to touch on different gospel writers to put all of this story together. And then we'll come back and end in uh, John. So Jesus is arrested. He's led through the most prominent and wealthy part of Jerusalem. And he's bound and he's brought before Annas. Now, Annas was a former high priest. And Caiaphas is his son-in-law. And according to Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote of these things, understand that when you read names in the Bible, it's not like there's no other historical record of these people. And so Josephus, who is a a historian, he writes of Caiaphas and says that he was put in uh, as high priest around 18 AD by the Roman official who preceded uh, uh, Pontius Pilate. And so Rome gave Jews, uh, the Jewish nation, a level of autonomy, even though they directly oppressed the Jewish people. It's one of the reasons they were waiting for a Messiah to break free from Roman oppression. And they allowed a level of autonomy, but the Romans made sure that they had total control over the affairs of Judea, and they reserved the right to not only appoint civil rulers, but also religious leaders, including the high priest. So Caiaphas is the high priest, but he's appointed not by the Jewish people, but by Rome. As a high priest, it meant that you were the most powerful and influential Jewish man in all of Judea. You were the connection between Israel and Rome. You kept the peace between both parties. Now, little is known about Caiaphas in his early career, but we know that he was a member of a wealthy and influential family. He married the daughter of uh, uh, Annas and uh, held great authority. Now, from what we can gather, uh, although Annas was not the official high priest, uh, he was kind of the one who was still calling the shots at why Jesus, why Jesus was brought to him first instead of going to Caiaphas, who was technically uh, the high priest. Annas was a patriarch uh, in a religious dynasty that controlled the temple. Not only was he a high priest, but five of his sons were high priests at one point. And now Caiaphas, who is his son-in-law, is high priest. So you can see how power was held very tightly in a close-knit family. They were a a dynasty, and there were great perks that came with the office of high priest. Uh, Excavations of high priest homes have shown uh, incredible opulence with imported china and frescoes and palaces of 6,000 square feet and Uh, There was money that was constantly coming in. Jews were required to pay a temple tax. All Jews, regardless of where you were, had to pay a temple tax. And all of that money flowed into this 32-acre site that housed the temple. And the person who was in charge of the temple was the high priest. And so there was money that that was flowing in, which gave the high priest not only power, but wealth. 
So much money poured into the temple that various uh, Roman provinces under, under various Roman leadership tried to pass laws that the Jews were not allowed to send money to the temple because so much money was leaving their home territory. I mean, in today's day, it would be millions of dollars flowing in to the temple or flowing in to the church. And it was a pretty good gig. The five sons, the father, Caiaphas now, the acting high priest, things are running smoothly, money's coming in, they're calling the shots, uh, highly respected, no one dared to oppose their dynasty until this Jewish rabbi showed up. It was unlike anything that they had ever seen because he spoke with authority and he spoke of a coming kingdom of God and what that would look like, breaking in among the people. He, he, he spoke and he had authority over sickness and disease and he calmed the, the, the weather pattern with just a spoken word and demons obeyed his command. And it didn't take long for word to begin to spread. And soon, everywhere Jesus went, there were hundreds, if not thousands of people who were crowding in to see this man who might just possibly be the anticipated Messiah. And meanwhile, Caiaphas looks on with jealousy. Because really, no one ever came to hear Caiaphas speak, unless it was a festival, but they really weren't even there for him. And no one traveled great distance to be in his presence. And conversations around the dinner table, no one was saying, did you hear about the amazing thing Caiaphas did? But Jesus was on everyone's lips, which made him a threat. The popularity of Jesus posed a threat not only to Caiaphas, but to a a, a religious dynasty, right? a family dynasty. And every person who was influenced by Jesus slowly began to erode their monopoly. And to add to that tension, Jesus made it very clear what he felt about those who were in religious authority and they used that authority for their own benefit. And he said things to the high priests and to the Pharisees and religious leaders. He said, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, but inside you smell of death. He actually said that God is going to judge you and take you out of this authority. At one point, he called them a brood of vipers who have been sentenced to hell. You can kind of see why Caiaphas didn't like this Jesus guy. Right? He's creating quite a stir. And he was seen as a threat. And Caiaphas was nervous. He, Jesus presented a problem that needed to be fixed. And so his opposition to Jesus was not just a disagreement on theology. He cloaked his feelings by, by screaming heresy but, and blasphemy, but really the problem was jealousy. And the threat level peaked, not because of what Jesus said, but because of something Jesus did. He did the impossible. John 11 tells us about it, that Jesus went into a community. The funeral had been over for three days, and the mourners remained, as was the custom. And uh, the mourning continues, and Jesus shows up, and his friend Lazarus has been dead now for three days. And Jesus starts talking about crazy things, like, I am the resurrection, and I am the life, and he goes up to the tomb where Lazarus is buried. He's now wrapped in grave clothes and he's placed in a tomb and the, sto- the tomb is sealed. And Jesus tells him, roll the stone away. And someone says, Jesus, he's going to be in all kinds of stank. He's like, it's been a long time. If you were here earlier, maybe. And Jesus like, move the stone. You can almost see him clearing his throat and saying, Lazarus, come forth. And to everyone's surprise, here comes this guy hopping out, hands and feet tied, uh, tied linen wrapped around his face. And, and the guy who was dead for three days now lives. Now, if somebody can bring someone back to life after being dead for three days, it's a pretty good indicator that you're in the presence of someone quite special. 
And Caiaphas is furious because Jesus is now more popular than ever. Look at verse 11 in John uh, chapter 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, speaking of this resurrection, believed in Jesus. Now even more people have come to believe. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said. Now the council is what's known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin's kind of the supreme court of the day. They claimed the right to regulate all religious affairs. There were 70 men and, and a high priest who made up the Sanhedrin, who made up this, this, um, uh, this court, so to speak, and they called the shots for uh, religious things. There were two groups that made up the Sanhedrin. There was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, when you hear Pharisees and Sadducees, just think of Republicans and Democrats. They didn't like each other. They didn't get along. They were never coming together in unity. They had some pretty uh, uh, wide uh, discrepancies in their beliefs. Sadducees didn't even believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe a Messiah was coming. And, and so they were always at odds with each other. They were always uh, uh, in some type of conflict. The Sadducees had the majority of the seats in uh, the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were the minority. Uh, the high priest was uh, of the Sadducees. And they just didn't get along. And so it was very uncommon for these parties really to come together. And what centuries could not accomplish, Jesus accomplished in a single event. Lazarus is raised, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees decide, we need to get together under a common cause of unity, and the common cause was to get rid of Jesus. And so John tells us that the Pharisees gathered the council. So these groups, they, they, they all come together because containment was lost and the situation was now out of control and opponents had now become believers and enemies of Jesus had now become friends and even some in their own ranks, men who were once opposed to Jesus had now come to believe and something had to be done lest this Jesus takes over the world. Look at, he goes on to say, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. Now, it's interesting here. The form of their question is a strange contradiction because they can't help admit that the miracles are happening. They don't understand what's going on. They know the guy was dead, and now all of a sudden the guy's alive, but they can't go down the road that Jesus might actually be God. And so by giving him no respect, they just call him this man. Verse 48. He says, if we let him go on like this, notice, everyone will believe in him. Now they're about to reveal part of their true concern. They could not help but admit to the miracles, but to acknowledge that Jesus was actually God and deserved to be worshipped as God and followed as God meant that they would have to give up something that was far too important to them, and that was their power and their prestige and their wealth, and that was a price that was too high. So it said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and, notice what it says next, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're like, look, if we don't do something quickly, we're going to lose everything that we've come to enjoy. We're going we're gonna to lose this lifestyle that we have become accustomed to. And if we don't do something quickly, all of this is going to go away. I, they couldn't help but understand or see that something supernatural was going on. But to head down that road by calling him the Messiah meant they would lose everything that they had come to hold dear to. 
Rome would come in and, and squash a rebellion and would take all of the, they would move them out and appoint new people. And they were like, we need to squash this thing quickly. And this is our struggle. That sometimes the price of following Jesus is just too high. It would be so much easier if Jesus only asked for half of us. You know, Jesus, this whole thing of all of us, if, if you could just say half of us, you, you, you would have so, much, so many more people who would be following you. And if you didn't expect that faith was to reorientate our lives around you and you at the center, and, and Jesus, don't you understand that, that, that so many more people would follow if you just back away from this take up your cross and die to yourself stuff? That's scary to people. Jesus, do you not understand that, that you would have so many more followers if you could back away from love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, soul, and strength, and if you would just rephrase that to modern society to say, hey, love the Lord your God with half of your mind, half of your heart, half of your soul, half your strength. If you could say that, Jesus, it would be easy. And yet Jesus makes it very clear. I'm not interested in competing with you for who will sit on the throne of your life. You know, we could say, Jesus, perhaps if you would change this, that phrase, count the cost, and if you would only say count the blessings, because everyone loves a blessing. You know, if Jesus would have ran some of these sayings through a PR firm, it would have been a whole lot easier for us. And yet this is my struggle, and I'm guessing this is your struggle, that Jesus will not compete with me. And he makes it very clear that I am God, you are not, and if you come after me, then I expect everything. And that means that you may have to lay down even that which you hold as most important to you. See, when we decide to follow Jesus, it will cost us something. And if in your following Jesus, it has cost you nothing, you may not be following Jesus. You may believe but believe and follow are different things. And Jesus makes it clear. He never tried to, to, to bait us. He never tried bait and switch. He never tried to lure us in and then spring the truth on us. From the beginning, he said, look, if you're coming after me, you better count the cost because it's going to cost you something. And it was a price that Caiaphas could not pay. Every time I put Jesus first, it means that something has to be taken off the throne of my life. And here's the thing, over time when I'm not looking, when I'm not paying attention, something has a way of sneaking back in and taking control of that throne. Meaning that once again I need to decide over and over and over again, who will be on the throne of my life? If that's not a struggle that you have, you may have missed something very important in your relationship with Jesus. He expects to be on the throne. And we can try to petition, and we can say, yeah, but, and we can say, but God, but you want me to be happy? And he's like, mm, surrender it all. Count the cost. Take up your cross and die to yourself. This is the tension that we live in every day. The story continues. But one of them, now this is Caiaphas in this meeting of the Sanhedrin, the same Caiaphas Jesus was brought before in John 18 that we just read, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better that a man should die for the people and that the whole nation 
uh, uh, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, John's writing his gospel years later, and he's looking back, and notice what he says in verse 51. He says that Caiaphas did not say this on his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. John looks back and he has to be grinning to say he didn't even realize it. But the more that they tried to silence his voice, the more that they tried to take the spotlight off of Jesus and put it on themselves, the more that they tried to stand in opposition, they didn't even get it. Little did they know that as they resisted, they participated and facilitated the the will of God. Because in the end, God gets what God wants. And, and you can almost see John looking back and laughing, saying he had no idea what he was even saying. John 11, verse 53. And so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death with Caiaphas leading the charge. So if we go back to John 18. This is kind of the, 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 the backstory. Jesus was questioned before Annas, and he sent to Caiaphas, who's been waiting for this moment all my life. Oh, Lord. You didn't know that was written about him. He says, has been waiting for this moment to end the threat, right? Verse 24, Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, for whatever reason, John does not go into Jesus before Caiaphas, but the other gospel writers do. So we're going to detour out of John, read through Matthew, big chunk of scripture coming, and then we'll get ready to close this thing out. So he's taken from Annas to Caiaphas. Matthew records what happens. Then those who seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders has gathered. And Peter was following them at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council, that's the Sanhedrin, were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found no one. Though many false witnesses came forward, at least two of them came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you have said so. It'd be our modern equivalent of saying, you said it, not me. He goes on to say, but I tell you, Jesus continues, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do you need? You now have heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? Tell the Sanhedrin, what's your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now the council, the Sanhedrin, they could render any judgment upon a Jew except for execution. In order for that to happen, Rome had to give permission and the Roman governor at the time was Pontius Pilate. And Caiaphas knew that Pilate would not get involved in a, in a Jewish squabble. If all that Caiaphas could say is that this guy's claiming to be the king of the Jews, Pilate would say, you deal with that yourself. I'm not Jewish. I don't even care. Caiaphas had to come up with something that would catch Pilate's attention, and so he came up with the charge of sedition, treason, that Jesus did not pose a threat only to the Jews, but he presented a threat to the Romans. He tried to convince Pilate that, that, that listen, what 
is Caesar going to say? But then Caesar was Tiberius. What's Caesar going to say when Jesus becomes more popular than him and he finds out that you could have ended this thing very early on? Luke 23, he gives his account. And he says, And the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, right? Treason. And saying that he himself is Christ the King. John 18. And they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters early in the morning. So he goes from Annas um, to uh, Caiaphas. Caiaphas takes him to Pilate. Pilate sends him uh, or from Caiaphas, and Caiaphas sends him to uh, Pilate. And this is where we are in John 18 again. Led him to Caiaphas, the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Now listen, it's interesting. They're about to kill the Son of God, but they're worried about being defiled by entering the home of a Gentile. Right? How many times do Christians go to war over something and completely miss what really matters? Verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him to you. In other words, they kind of give this, they, this idea of, Hey, trust us. We wouldn't be here this early in the morning if this guy didn't deserve it. And Pilate said to them, Verse 31, take him yourself and judge him by your own laws. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. And so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? He's not really seeking to defend himself, but he's, he's trying to, to, to probe the heart of Pilate. Are, are you asking me on your own accord? Because if you are, we can have a great conversation. Or are you just asking me because Caiaphas told you that I'm a threat to you as a king? And Pilate answered, verse 35, he said, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And it was like, I'm not interested in this ultimately because I'm not even Jewish. Look, if you claim to be the king of the Jews, that's one thing. But if you're claiming to be a king over Caesar, then that's a whole other situation. Jesus answers, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Go to verse 36 there. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, he's saying, look, I am a king, but you don't have to worry. He says, look, if my kingdom was of this world, my, my servants, we'd be fighting against you right now. But my kingdom is not of this world. Verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus once again said, you said that I'm a king. Like you said it, I didn't. And then he says, you're absolutely right. But my kingdom is not a threat to you. That my kingdom is centered on revelation, not on a revolution. It's centered on truth, not on treason. I'm a teacher, not a traitor. But he says, for this purpose I was born. And for this person I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth, listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now it would have been great if Pilate was saying, Jesus, instruct me, inform me, what is truth? But what Pilate was saying is, you actually believe that there's truth. You actually believe that there's a universal truth, which is what we see in our culture today, because right now truth is relative. Truth is, whatever you want truth to be, then you can have your own truth. And Pilate's kind of like, really, what is truth really? What is this, what is this, who, who determines what truth is? is 
after this said, uh, after this he said to them, uh, went outside to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. So Pilate kind of just wants this to go away. There's something going on, but you know, he's unsure. He's not up for crucifying an innocent man. Verse 39, but you have a custom, Pilate says, that I should release one man to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And John gives a footnote. He says, now Barabbas was a robber. So Jesus is sold for 30 pieces of silver, and now a robber, a thief, is placed above him. The irony in all of this is that it appeared that Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin were in the judge's seat and Jesus was on trial, and in a way, that's true. But ultimately, it was reversed. It was Jesus who was in the judge's seat, and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin were on trial, and they were found guilty. In the end, Caiaphas lost his place. In the end, they lost their entire temple. In the end, the Sanhedrin system broke apart. And as it is with other parts of history, those who choose to stand against God just become a footnote in God's story. And Caiaphas is a footnote in Jesus' story. But there is a little bit of Caiaphas in all of us. Our desire to preserve and to keep at all costs Our desire for relationships and job and money and prestige. And God, if you would help me get it, that would be fantastic. But if you're asking me to say no, or if you're asking me to repent from it, if you're asking me to give it up, then there are some things that are just too costly. Whatever it is that you have replaced God with, whatever it is that you have placed at the center of your life, you and I, we will lose that in the end. And if we could sit down over coffee, I bet you we could make a strong case that that which you have been unwilling to surrender has already lost enormous value in your life and has already caused all kinds of pain and all kinds of heartache and all kinds of struggle, and yet we clinch to it. Judas, at one point, 30 pieces of silver was worth selling out his relationship with Jesus. And that 30 pieces of silver that at one moment he had to have, in a few moments later, became the source of his biggest regret. Throws the money back and says, I've done wrong. And he goes out and hanged himself. And that is my story and that's your story. Those things that we have tried to possess because we just had to have them or those things that we tried to hang on to because we just couldn't release them, those things that we couldn't release to God are possibly things that are even no longer in our lives. And yet at the time, they were so crucial. And for some of us, we look back and they are the point of our greatest regret. And I get That surrendering is terrifying. But Caiaphas reminds us that saying yes to God will cost you something. But saying no to God will ultimately cost you everything. This Easter season, I encourage you to appraise your life and ask yourself, what is on the throne, the center of my life right now? And what needs to be removed to put Jesus there again. Join with me as we pray. 
Lord, let the Easter story be alive to us. We're going through great lengths to try to put this story together so we can understand it and try to bring some meaning out of it for us. And Today, would you deal with us about this idea of surrender? This idea of who will be at the center of our lives, who will be calling the shots? Would you speak to us about how we're so quick to compartmentalize our lives? We have these areas that we keep you out of. Speak to us about total and complete surrender. And for those who are wrestling with it, even right now, that image, that word, that thing that they just say, I I don't know if I can, would you speak? Would you bring truth? And would we surrender? Make the Easter season alive as we move in towards Resurrection Sunday. That we would be reminded of your death. We would be reminded of all that you have gone through. That you might purchase us back. That our sin could be forgiven. And then as Easter approaches, let us celebrate that death had no hold on you. Let us celebrate that you are the resurrection and the life. And not only do you resurrect us in the end, but you resurrect us even on this earth. You take those of us who were dead and dying and broken and you resurrect and bring life back into us. And we want to receive that life that begins today by submitting and following you as Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, 12 o'clock. If you want to be at the building, I'll open it up for you. I uh, look forward to seeing you down there. If you can make it, if you're a guest, I'd love to meet you down here. If you would like prayer, we'll have some people that would pray for you. We'll continue the book of John next week. Look forward to seeing you guys then. God bless you.